afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. One of the most fundamental truths about what it means to be human is that we belong in some way to each other. Abortion is premised on an utter repudiation of this reality. It takes the dependence and vulnerability of the unborn child as a justification for lethal violence, and that denial does have ramifications for all of us. It does imprint uh, the society of which we're a part. My guest, Dr. Ryan Anderson, is a political philosopher and one of America's most one of America's most engaging public intellectuals. He's currently president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington D.C., a graduate of Princeton University, where he uh, a graduate of Princeton. He earned his doctorate at Notre Dame. He's the author of a number of very important books, including "When Harry Became Sally: Responding to the Transgender Movement." Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and most recently, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Ryan, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be with you. Let's let's go to the the, the shape of the abortion argument. It's been, um, you know, over uh, almost 50 years since uh, Roe v. Wade. We have now the Dobbs decision. It's changed the landscape. We've removed that major obstacle that was in the road. It's been broken up now into 50 different obstacles. We've got to each state. Do you think the abortion argument, the argument in favor of abortion, has changed over the last 50 years? Unfortunately, yes, um, and it's changed for the worse. Um, you know, at first, the argument for abortion was this is a tragic necessity, uh, you know, eventually under the Clinton administration, it was safe, legal, and rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, you have people willing to acknowledge that, you know, abortion is a bad thing, but sometimes it's a necessary thing. Now you see people saying abortion is a positive good. Right? You see the campaigns to, um, you know, so-called shout your abortion. Yeah. Um, that, you know, abortion is no different than, you know, pulling a tooth or removing your appendix. And that, I think, has really changed for the worse. Um, because it's um, even those who are pro-choice are denying that there's any moral complexity. Yeah. They think it's an easy, easy answer, and they come down on the wrong side of the question. Um, and so what Alexandra and I try to do in our book is actually show, you know, a variety of ways in which um, abortion causes both moral harm, physical harm, societal harm, et cetera, et cetera, things that, you know, the contemporary pro-abortion arguments uh, tend to either downplay or explicitly deny yeah. I, I, I love the title of the book, uh, Tearing Us Apart, because really that's what abortion does to mother and child, and yet it becomes a metaphor for what happens uh, in culture as well. Are we crasser today, uh, unless humane, because of our easy attitude and acceptance of abortion? I think that's almost an undeniable proposition. Yeah. The short answer to your question yeah. is yes. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not just because of abortion. I, I think um, this is the, the result of the past 50 years of the sexual revolution. And one of the things that Alexander and I try to do in the conclusion of the book is, is to point out that you can't just um, combat the scourge of abortion without taking on the totality of the sexual revolution. Um, that abortion is both a consequence of the sexual revolution, yep. but it's also a catalyst of the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think a holistic response, and this is why, you know, the Catholic Church is so well positioned to be the leader of the pro-life movement, uh, because it has a holistic vision, both of the dignity of the human person, including 
uh, that unborn child, including that mother. Uh, but it also has a picture of the theology of the body, yeah. right? And the importance of marriage for human sexuality, the importance of both fathers and mothers committing to each other and then committing to their children. And, and I think ultimately that's, that's what we need to recover, right? And so what we, we sketch out some ideas at the end of the book saying, you know, we can't be myopic. We can't just focus on, you know, prohibiting abortion, right. although we need to do that. Mm-hmm. But in addition mm-hmm. to doing that, we also need to rebuild a sound culture of human sexuality, a sound marriage culture, uh, a sound culture that values children uh, and that values the family. Yeah. I think at one point you say it's not just that abortion needs to be illegal, it needs to be unthinkable. It needs to be an option that people find repugnant and unnecessary. Uh, Education is a vital part of that. Uh, Unfortunately, when it comes to uh, law, uh, there's a a fight, a bitterness that often uh, occurs that makes education difficult. Is, Is it is it diff- how difficult is it for us to push for laws prohibiting abortion or restricting or limiting abortion and also do the work of persuasion it depends where you live um to be honest i mean the when you say how difficult is it you know if you're living in california or illinois or massachusetts mm-hmm. or new york it's fairly difficult because right now pro-lifers don't have um, political power. Yeah. And so it's very hard to uh, enact the laws that would protect unborn babies, protect their mothers, empower their mothers. Uh, it's also very hard in those um, states to do the persuasion bit because we don't control the universities. We don't control the TV stations. We don't control the evening news. We don't control the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. It's a little bit easier in other states, um, in certain states, Take, for example, the state of Texas. Um, pro-lifers can pass laws. And, you know, in the state of Texas, over a year ago, they passed the heartbeat bill, protecting unborn babies after six weeks when a heartbeat can be detected. They right. also passed a bill. The media didn't cover this. I'm sure you covered it, but, you know, the mainstream media yeah. didn't cover it. Yeah. They allocated an additional $100 million to the Texas Alternative to Abortion yeah. Program. Yeah. Right? And, and then if you think about, you know, some of the newspapers in Texas, some of the evening news stations, pro-lifers have a voice there. And so, you know, they, they, they could talk about doing both of these things, loving both the baby and the mother. And so, you know, depending what state our listeners are in right now, that's going to determine how easy or how hard it is. Yeah. The, the last thing I'll add on this question is, I don't care how hard it is or how easy it is, we have to do it, yeah. right? And we have to find creative, innovative ways to do it, even in the deepest blue of blue state. And we can't take it for granted in red states. Right. Right? It's, it's important that uh, pro-lifers have a seat at the table and that they be driving the agenda, not just taken for granted. I noticed the, one reason I, I focus on this, because I've noticed in conversations uh, oftentimes with uh, younger uh, uh, Catholics that there's an idea that somehow uh, there's something not quite right about passing a law when, in fact, we haven't persuaded the culture. Uh, they don't seem to understand that the law itself has a pedagogical function and that it it teaches. So the prohibition of abortion will imply that there's something morally wrong uh, with abortion. Isn't that right? That's that's exactly right. It's it's one of the things that we point out in the book is that you think about the aftermath of Roe v. Wade, it taught a generation of young people 
that abortion isn't only good, it's a constitutional right. right. Think about what's happened in the decades since Windsor and then Obergefell, the Supreme Court cases redefining marriage. It's taught a generation, especially of young people, that marriage is a genderless institution. It's union of any two adults, regardless of sexual complementarity. The law is persuasive. The law is a teacher. As you said, it's a pedagogical function of law. Um, and so we as pro-lifers should not be afraid of um, using the authority of law to teach moral truth. Right. Right. Simultaneously, we ourselves as pro-lifers shouldn't be as- afraid of teaching moral truth. I mean, part of the impetus for writing the book was, you know, this time last year, you know, we thought Supreme Court's going to overturn Roe. We need to equip pro-lifers to be ready to have those conversations, right? And so the, the purpose of the book is really to be a one-stop shop where, you know, any pro-lifer can read all of the best arguments yeah. compiled yeah. in one place. So then they can bear witness to the truth with their friends, their neighbors, their family members, you know, whoever doesn't currently believe the truth about life could believe it as a result of the conversations that you have with them. Yeah. In fact, let me point out that the book is organized in such a way that it does take on all these questions very clearly. Uh, abortion harms the unborn child is chapter one. Abortion harms women in the family. Abortion harms equality and choice. Abortion harms medicine. So it's all laid out very clearly and organized wonderfully uh, in the book, and it's also got uh, uh, just a lucid and even delightful style in many passages. Um, the do you I mean you're you're engaged in conversations at very high levels with major pro-life organizations I'm sure are you are you encouraged by what you're seeing on the front lines of the pro-life battle are are people really focused on victory here uh, do they have a, a a realistic sense of what can be accomplished. I think so. I mean, especially if you look at the people on the front line um, leading some of the nation's pro-life groups, mm-hmm. uh, including the Catholic bishops. I mean, just earlier this week, um, I, I guess it would have had to have been yesterday, since today's only Tuesday, um, uh, uh, Catholic bishops, it was Archbishop Laurie of Baltimore, it was Cardinal Dolan of New York, uh, Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco, and then Archbishop Coakley, um, they put out a really good statement calling on Congress, and they had, you know, specific measures. Um, to put into place. You look at the leaders of groups like Americans United for Life, the Susan B. Anthony list, uh, Students for Life, Live Action. Um, They are not letting this moment go to waste. Um, They they were prepared for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe, um, and they're getting to work both legislatively at the state level and at the federal level, uh, culturally, socially, you know, communicating truths, educating, having conferences for students, uh, and then, you know, think about all the pregnancy resource centers. Think about CareNet. Think about the different networks of pregnancy resource centers. Even in the wake of, you know, fire bombings and other acts of vandalism and um, uh, destruction, they're not cowering, right? They're doubling down on their mission to serve women in need. So, so I do think the pro-life movement is rising to the occasion. Uh, that said, there's always more to be done. Sure. And, and there's a role for every one of our listeners right now. Each and every one of us can do a little bit more. Um, and, and we should find out, you know, what we can be doing, how we can be doing it. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't rest content uh, that any of us are doing enough. My guest is uh, Ryan Anderson, taking a look at the work he's done with uh, Alexandra DeSantis in a book called Tearing Us Apart, 
how abortion harms everything and solves nothing. Uh, we're, again, encouraging you, you to get the book. We have it available in the online bookstore. We're going to continue conversation with Ryan and take a look at some particular ways in which abortion harms, for instance, uh, the rule of law and uh, how abortion harms our political participation and uh, the democratic process. So stay with us. More to talk about. I'm Al Cresta. Cresta with me, Dr. Ryan Anderson. He is co-author, along with Alexandra DeSanctis, uh, of the book Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Again, as I said earlier, this is uh, wonderfully organized, so you can take a look at the various arguments here. Uh, abortion harms the rule of law. Abortion harms medicine. Abortion harms equality and choice. I want to look at the how abortion harms politics and the democratic process, Ryan. Um, what right right now, if you're uh, if you're committed uh, to the protection of uh, preborn children, you're generally going to vote uh, Republican. There aren't many, especially at the federal level. There are not many Democratic options for you. Is that a dangerous place for movement to be? Where only one political party, uh, you know, represents it. Without a doubt, um, all of us would be much better off if neither of the two major political parties in the United States uh, were committed to a fundamental injustice. Yeah. Right? And that's what we have right now. We, we, we have a, a political reality where one of our political parties is committed to an injustice, to a human rights violation. And that allows the other political party uh, to sometimes take us for granted, right? sometimes <laughs> right, just yeah. to pay lip service. Yeah. To us. I mean, I know I've, I've now worked for a decade in Washington, D.C., that there are Republicans who campaign at home saying that they're pro-life and they'll get to D.C. and they'll fight for the babies. And then as soon as they get to D.C., they say behind closed doors, I don't ever want to be forced to vote on it. It's a divisive issue. It's controversial. And then they focus on other things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a bad place to be because they know they can take us for granted. So yeah. we would be much better off if we had meaningful political choices. And that meant both political parties were committed to human rights, committed to justice, committed to the common good. And then we were only disagreeing about, you know, what's the best platform for getting there? You know, what policy is best going to get us to the desired um, destination? But we all agree about what that destination is. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have disagreements on what the destination is. Yeah. Right? And some yeah. groups want to protect babies and support moms, and some groups don't. Yeah. No, very, very true. Very true. Um Roe v. Wade, uh, when it was written, was recognized by many prestigious uh, legal scholars as a, just a terrible decision, uh, even if they favored uh, abortion rights in some way. They thought Roe didn't do the proper constitutional job. How widespread was that opinion uh, back in 1973? You know, it was fairly widespread because anyone who— um, 
you know, understood constitutional law, understood that Roe didn't even pretend to be constitutional law. They said mm-hmm. this was just legislation masquerading as law. Uh, and we cite in the book, you know, kind of chapter and verse, you know, a who's who of legal luminaries saying this, which is why 20 years later in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision, um, the court didn't say that Roe was rightly decided. Right. They right. said because of stare decisis, we have to uphold it. Right? And, yep. and you find very few people, even during the Dobbs case, the other side wasn't arguing that Roe was rightly decided. They just said, you can't overturn it. You know, it's been 49 years. It's a super duper precedent, right? It's, <laughs> right. It's, it, it was ridiculous, right? Yep. Everyone knows that the American Constitution, rightly understood, does not protect a right to engage in lethal violence in the womb, right? That all of our liberties, including a privacy liberty, a liberty, liberty, and uh, 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 an equality interest, all of these liberties have limits. And one of the bright line limits is that you can't use your liberty to harm other people and certainly not to kill other innocent people. Um, And that's why, I mean, it's been an indefensible ruling since it came down, which is why all of the confirmation hearings, right? We go through confirmation hearing after confirmation hearing. What was really going on when they borked Judge Bork? Right. When they went after Justice Clarice Thomas, when they went Mm -hmm. after... Justice Kavanaugh, when they said Amy Coney Barrett, the dogma lives loudly, (laughs) those were all proxy wars for Mm -hmm. what's going to be the bottom line when it comes to Roe v. Wade. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, Is the argument from the autonomy of the woman uh, as strongly argued today as it was uh, back in 73? What's even more strongly argued today, what's interesting is that... um, if you look at, uh, you reread the Roe opinion, uh, and this is something that, you know, even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg criticized Roe for. She said, and I'm loosely paraphrasing, the image you get from Roe is that it's the male doctor who needs constitutional protection, constitutional freedom <laughs> to make a decision about when his female patient needs abortion. Um, then it's been reconceptualized to say, no, 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 it's part of women's equality that they need to be the one making this choice. And in order for women to be equal to men, they need to be able to engage in sex and in the marketplace on the same terms and conditions as men. And because men can be irresponsible and engage in sex without commitment and then walk away from those children to advance their career, women should be able to do the same thing. Uh, And so there's a certain logic to this, but it's a bad train of logic, right? The the, the better response is to say, no, men shouldn't be allowed to be irresponsible. Men shouldn't be allowed to engage in um, uh, uh, sex without then taking responsibility for the consequences, right? The consequences to those women, the consequences to those children, which is why it's always amusing whenever you see a pro-choicer say something like, okay, well, if you pro-lifers really believe life begins at conception, I'm going to introduce the bill saying fathers have to start paying child support at conception. And then all the pro-lifers <laughs> like, that's great. Sign me up. Right? They, they don't get that. Right. We actually believe this. It's true. Right. That, is, that is funny. Uh, there was a very famous argument uh, uh, regarding bodily autonomy back in 1971 by the moral philosopher Judith uh, Thompson, where she um, analogized uh, comparing a pregnant woman to a hypothetical individual who, without his consent, had been hooked up to a famous violinist who's sick and who the violinist required this connection to remain alive. 
So you, you can imagine someone with kidney or liver failure who needs to be plugged into your body so that he can rely on your kidney or your liver for, say, you know, nine months until a transplant could be found. So in Thompson's analogy, she's saying uh, just as it would be morally acceptable for you to choose to detach from this needy, dependent violinist, uh, even if you know he will die as a result, so too it would be acceptable for a pregnant woman to have the unborn child detached. You're not intending uh, to necessarily kill. You're not acting directly to kill, but uh, you're simply... uh, having to detach the person, and the foreseeable consequence is their death, but uh, you didn't really intend it because you never intended them to be attached in the first place. Uh, Is that still used? Unfortunately, yes. I mean, a lot of people actually think that Judith Jarvis Thompson argument is the strongest argument for abortion. And here's why. Um, They need to make an argument like that because they know that the arguments that say the unborn child is just a clump of cells fail disastrously, right? So they can't embrace the argument that denies the humanity of the unborn. They also know the Peter Singer-style arguments that say, yes, it's a human being, but it's not a human person. Mm -hmm. Those also fail disastrously because they they justify not just abortion, but infanticide. Right. And so for the really sophisticated pro-choicer, they're saying to themselves, well, we can't be science deniers. And we can't embrace an argument that results in infanticide. So what's the third alternative? And the third alternative is says, yes, it's a human being. Yes, it's a human person. But it doesn't have a right to occupy your womb. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a duty to allow it to occupy your womb. Right? And, and so that's the kind of most philosophically sophisticated uh, pro-choice argument on office so uh, on offer. The child, and so as a result, we, yeah. we oh, go ahead. No, the child is what an invader. Unfortunately, that is how they would um, view this. Yeah. Yes. Wow. And what we respond to this is um, in ninety-nine percent of the cases, um, both mother and father have voluntarily engaged in the action that creates the newborn human yes. life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yep. you know, leave aside just for the moment situations of, of rape. Uh, it's not like the violinist who, you know, secretly gets hooked up to your liver and kidney while you're sleeping at night. Um, you engaged in the action that brought that child into existence. And therefore, you bear responsibility to that child. Point one. Point two, this isn't a stranger that just is, you know, um, hooking themselves <laughs> up right. to your organs. This is your child. Right. And the mother, uh, uh, son-mother-daughter relationship, the father-son, father-daughter relationship, that's a morally significant relationship. And then point three, abortion is not just de-hooking an unborn child, yeah. right? The intention, the objective in abortion is to kill the child. Yeah, is... um, an abortion where the child lives is considered a failed abortion. Right. And so it's not just a matter of unplugging the violinist, it's a matter of intentionally killing an innocent human life. In what way has abortion uh, harmed medicine? Oh, multiple ways. But, but, but I mean, like, um, let me start with the biggest, biggest high picture uh, level. Yeah, it directly ahead. violates the Hippocratic Oath. Um, yeah. It turns medicine into kind of a morally neutral um, uh, pursuit in which the medical professional, the technician, right, it's, not, it's no longer a doctor um, who is committed to healing and wholeness. 
it's a service provider. And the service provider has certain tools and techniques, and they can use those tools and techniques uh, in you know kind of morally neutral ways. Sometimes they'll be used for healing, sometimes they'll be used for killing. And the only thing that determines whether the unborn child is a patient or an intruder is whether the unborn child is wanted or not wanted. Yeah. Right? So it totally disconnects the underlying moral foundation of medicine, which is why you've then seen the push for abortion lead to things like embryo destructive research, cloning mm-hmm. and embryo destruction, and then physician-assisted suicide. So chapter four of the book is when Alexandra and I, you know, document all the harms um, to medicine. And, and, you know, we start with Hippocratic Oath. We start with how it's corrupted professional medical associations. We start with how it's undermined the very moral purpose of medicine. But then we go on to document how it then leads to additional harms. How, I'm just wondering, you know, doctors who originally took the Hippocratic Oath, and I don't know what percentage of them still do, but why did, why didn't the medical profession take a stand against abortion? I mean, the 19th century, they're the ones who pushed for prohibition of abortion and legal uh, criminalization of abortion. What happened uh, among the constituency of the American Medical Association? Well, so I would say um, you have, um, you know, you think of the concept of regulatory capture in the political sense. You also have the subcommittee capture mm. in the professional association sense. It's not that the majority of doctors have embraced abortion. In fact, they haven't. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's something like 90-some percent of OBGYN refuse to perform abortion because they see that it actually conflicts with their vocation yeah. as a healer. But the people who are most likely to run to be the chair of the committee dealing with X, Y, and Z are the activists. It's something very similar um, with respect to gender identity medicine. It's not that the majority of endocrinologists or the majority of surgeons or the majority of uh, psychologists and psychiatrists are in favor of this. Um, it's that those who care most about this, yes. the ideologues, the activists, mm-hmm. they run for the positions, they become head of the subcommittee, they issue um, the statement. Yeah, yeah. And that's important. That is so important to keep in mind because it doesn't take the majority of uh, a group uh, to decide the future of the group. It takes just a few activists, very, you know, five, ten percent of the activists uh, to do it. And uh, well, Ryan, thanks so much. Uh, great spending the time with you. And I greatly appreciate your work and uh, hope we can talk again in the near future. Great. Thank you. Dr. Ryan Anderson, along with Alexandra DeSanctis, wrote Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. 